John 5, 25. So truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now you sent to John, this is John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word today and just our time here to study and to be reminded of the significance of this chapter and its importance for us in our lives. And so you will speak today. Um, My prayer is for all of us that we would yield our ears and our mind and our time here to listen to what you have for us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So let me remind us of where we have been in John chapter 5. At the beginning, there is a man who has been paralyzed for 38 years of his life. We don't know if he's been born this way or something happened, but he's been paralyzed for 38 years. He is lying by the pool of Bethesda, believing in a superstition belief that if he could get into the water, if an angel stirred it and he could get into the water first, he would be able to find healing. And so he is banking on a false belief system uh, to bring him healing. Jesus comes by through grace, says to the man, do you want to be healed? The man says, well, I don't have anybody to help me in. And, and Jesus says, well, here's the deal. I want you to take up your mat and I want you to walk. And so he picks up his mat and he's walking. Um, this is a Sabbath day. He's walking through the temple The religious leaders are there, the Pharisees, they are in their dressed out garb. They've got all their stuff. This man is walking. They have devised rules that you are to follow on the Sabbath. And carrying your mat is a breaking of their rules, which means the man is working by carrying his mat. So they stop him and have a conversation with them about what are you doing walking with your mat. And he just stops and he says, well, uh, all I can say is this is that this guy came by and he told me to get up, and I've not walked in 38 years, and he told me to get up and carry my mat, and so I'm doing exactly what he told me to do. And so they're upset with the man, and then now they're upset with Jesus. But nobody knows, the man doesn't know who Jesus is, and the religious leaders don't know that it's Jesus who's healed the man. But once they find out, Jesus finds him later that day in the temple, and once they find out that it's Jesus who's given the authority and the okay for this man to work in their eyes, they are upset with Jesus. And that brings us 
to what we have been looking at in these days. And we're going to have phase two of our testimonies of Jesus. But let me just establish this um, before we get to this phase two today. I believe that John chapter 5 is one of the most significant chapters in all of the New Testament. And the reason I believe that is there's not another chapter, and a lot of, a lot of the chapters really give a, um, affirmation to the glory of Christ, but there's not another chapter that gives the specific stacking upon stacking of details about the glory of Christ like John chapter 5. So I'm taking my time through John chapter 5, and I'm not going to apologize for it at, at all. And eventually... Um, we're going to add more boxes today, and eventually we're not going to have room. We're going to have to put boxes over here. But by the time this is over with, I'm going to show you that there are so many affirmations about the glory of Christ. So today we're going to deal with John the Baptist's affirmations of Jesus. Next week we're going to talk about the works of Jesus that he did. They gave affirmation that he is the Son of God, that he is God. And then the last week testimony is the scripture's testimony as to who Christ is and there's not enough room in this building to stack the boxes of what the scripture has to say about Jesus this chapter is absolutely significant for a Christian to understand who Christ is so I'm going to go back and I'm going to review where we were some of you may have been listening last week and didn't have any idea of what's going on so here's how Jesus begins to respond to the religious leaders who say, you are breaking the Sabbath, and so how does Jesus respond to that he can't break the Sabbath? So Jesus establishes for them, listen, I want you all to know that my Father has always been at work on the Sabbath, and because I'm equal with the Father, and this is what Jesus does, he begins by giving testimony of himself and affirming that he is equal to the Father. He's not greater than the Father. The Father's not greater than, than He is. The Holy Spirit is not greater. They are all equal. They are all absolutely, in essence, God. So He tells them, my Father's at work on the Sabbath. I'm at work on the Sabbath. And then He says, listen, um, I'm the only one, Jesus says in John 5, who sees what the Father is up to. I know the Father in such an intimate way because we are so connected. I see what the Father's doing. And so you and I can see what God's up to, but nobody can see what God's up to like Jesus can because he was God himself. And so he says, I see what the Father does. Or Yeah, there we go. Third one. He says, and the Father does this because I love the Father and the Father loves me. The Father loves showing me all the things that he's up to, what he's doing in this person's life, that person's life. And so Jesus says, the Father shows me all that he is doing. So Jesus has this unique insight that nobody else had to know what the Father was up to. And then he says this, he goes back to the Old Testament, he says, in the Old Testament, if you'll remember, the Father gave power to prophets to raise the dead. Elisha and Elijah. And we know in the Gospels that Jesus raised people from the dead and so he says listen here's another equality that i have with the father as the father raises the dead i also had the same power indicating that i'm god that i can raise the dead as well and then he gives the next one and the father gives me his son 
the role as judge over the whole world. I am the judge. I am the one who is the arbiter above all things, what is just, what is right, what is true. I am the one who has been given this role as judge. Now, incidentally, John chapter 3 tells us that he did not come to judge the world, but he came to save the world through giving of his life. And so, so God, our God is not one of these gods. There's not other gods, but there's little gods. But our God is the God who came to give life, not to just come and yell at people and put them down and point out how awful they are. Just look at John chapter 4 and the tenderness that he had with a Samaritan woman, valuing a half-breed Jewish, Gentile, mixed race of people, and he valued her and valued the people in that community. And so he's got this role as judge, but he also, that's not why he came, just to judge. He came to save. And then he said this, the father is to get honor, and I as the son and to get the same kind of honor that you give the father. And then he says this, Jesus affirming his equality he says the father has life in himself because he is sovereign eternal god and i have life in myself because guess what i am like the father i am sovereign eternal god and so as the father has life in himself so does the son have life in himself and then he says this and the father gives the son the authority to judge so he has the role of the judge And now Jesus affirms this authority that he is the one who is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He will separate the sheep from the goats. He has the power and the authority given to him by the Father to judge. And then lastly, Jesus says, as he's affirming the equality that he has with the Father, he says this, that I have been given the authority and the power by my speaking, I will resurrect all of the dead, either to um, raising a resurrection to eternal life in heaven, or I will do so to a resurrection of those who will be separated from me in heaven. So that's how he first starts to answer them in regard to why do you think you have the authority to do what you are doing? Now, the religious leaders have a real problem with this. And the problem is this, you can't just give self-testimony about yourself. There must be other witnesses to affirm what you're saying as true. Okay, who else can say that what you've been saying, Jesus, nine things, that you're equal to the Father, equal to Yahweh? Who else affirms that? Well, there are multiple things. And three weeks from now or four weeks from now, when we got boxes all over this place affirming everything, you will see there are multiple testimonies stacked upon stack as to who affirms the authority of Jesus. But they have a problem with him claiming equality because he doesn't have witnesses. This is grounded in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. And I won't read that, but that's where this comes from, that you have to have more than just one eyewitness. You've got to have two to three witnesses. And so they think he is out of his mind that he can give self-testimony about himself without any witnesses. And let me just say this here. It never ended with the religious leaders in their opposition of him. They just fought him at every turn. It is, it is telling of someone in regard to Christ who opposes Jesus at every turn. 
It doesn't want to stop and, and contemplate things. These men should have clued in to the reality of what was taking place in their midst. And they had every opportunity to spend their days bowing and worshiping Jesus as the Son of God and Messiah, but they chose to stand in opposition of who he was claiming to be. And oh, the things that they missed. You know, my f- probably, possibly my favorite New Testament story is Luke chapter 24. I love the story on the day of the greatest day in the history of the world that Jesus took the time to walk 10.4 miles with two men from Jerusalem to Emmaus. He didn't get on the quick speaking circuit. He just walked with two guys and he explained to them from the Old Testament scriptures everything that was given in affirmation of him. Just imagine what the Pharisees could have experienced over three and a half years. They had memorized the first five books of the New Testament. Many of them had memorized other books, many of the Psalms. Can you imagine the deep conversations they could have had of saying, we've been waiting for you, we've been waiting for you. Can you explain what Moses wrote here about this? Can you give us more insight? And they just missed out on it because they stood in opposition. And here's why. There was a blindness There's a blindness to spiritual arrogance that just looks like craziness. And so as they stand against him and stand against the truth, they they reject him instead of honoring him. They want to continue to honor their way in, in everything. And here's why they rejected Christ. They made their own rules. And they established these rules to be equal to the Scripture, and in many cases, greater than the written text. And this is what happens. Whatever we exalt, listen, whatever we exalt, that is where we're going to take our stand. And so we, as Christ followers, must be careful what we are exalting, what we are pushing, what our agenda is. We have one agenda, and that is the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. There isn't another agenda. There is not another agenda. That's where we stand, and what we exalt, that's where we will always stand. And so they exalted their man-made rules, so they take their stand. Why? Because Jesus stood opposed to their man-made rules. And so they take their stand before the Messiah, and they reject Him. They should have known better. One of their own came to them, came to Christ in John chapter 3 by the name of Nicodemus. And this is what Nicodemus said in John 3, 2. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know, we know this. We've been talking and we know by evidence of seeing that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus is affirming this. They have talked about this. They they have given this affirmation, but because Jesus was standing against their man-made rules, they began to stand against Him. And any time we set up a system of rules that are grounded in man's perspective on matters of faith, instead of the words of God that have come to us in the Scripture, um, we will just bottom line have a greater passion for the ways of man than we will have for the ways of God and the purposes of God. They had exalted what was less than God to be greater than God who was standing right in front of them. 
Wouldn't that be amazing today if Jesus just popped up in this room today, in his body, and he's just here? Wouldn't that not be amazing to see him? They have that in front of them, and they want their man-made rules greater than anything else. Sheldon Van Aachen um, wrote in Severe Mercy this, The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians. When they are self-righteous and smug and complacent consecration, when they're narrow and repressive, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. So Jesus gives affirmation. I'm equal to the Father. They don't like it. And so in response to them saying, okay, well, who gives testimony? You can't just give testimony by yourself. Jesus tells them, well, I actually have someone who gives testimony about myself, and it's the Father. So I'm going to come back over here and remind us of where we were last week. So, so all through the Scripture, the Father gives evidence and testimony as to why Jesus is important for us. And the first one is just simply the prophets, the Old Testament writings speak about the coming of Jesus. There's one who is coming. And it begins in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Is the first picture of there's one who is going to come. So the prophets gave, Micah did, Isaiah did, Malachi wrote of the coming of the Lord. So at the time of Jesus, shepherds are out in the field. In Bethlehem, this birth takes place in a stall and the angels appear to the shepherds and say hey in in Bethlehem just not far from where you are you need to know this the savior of the world has been born and so the father sent angels to proclaim to the shepherds they come and they see we also know this that for likely a while wise men from the east had traveled following a star the father had revealed this to these wise men they come and when they get to bethlehem jesus and mary and joseph are in a house you know what they do they bring gifts they lay them down and it says they worship him so through the angels the father was giving testimony to the glory of jesus at jesus's baptism the Father, Jesus comes up out of the water, and the, Father, and the Father audibly speaks and says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. In Matthew 17, there's a transfiguration where Peter, James, and John, they go up on the mountain, and the glory of Christ is shown, and, and just bright light comes, and, the, and, and a cloud comes, and the Father speaks, and He adds something that He didn't say at the baptism. He said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then He says this, listen to Him. Listen to what He says. And so at His transfiguration, He does this. At the crucifixion, the Father gave affirmation to who Jesus is. At the crucifixion in the temple, the veil is torn in two, meaning this, that is no longer necessary. Yeah, we used to call that the Holy of Holies. We used to call that the mercy seat, but the mercy seat's out there hanging on a cross. The Holy of Holies is out there on the altar of the cross outside of the city. And Jesus' death was so powerful, the Father gave affirmation that when he died on the cross... Dead people in the tombs, in cemeteries, in Jerusalem, came up out of the tombs, were resurrected, and walked around in the city. And people talked to them, and people saw them. So the Father at the crucifixion gave affirmation 
to the glory of Christ. At the resurrection, the Father gave affirmation to the glory of Christ. The next place that the Father gives affirmation is that Jesus ascends from this earth, standing in the presence of the disciples, and He goes to heaven, and He sits at the right hand of the Father in the seat of power. It also means this, that when you sit down, it means your work is finished. So he sits down in a seat of a power, an authority, an affirmation of the Father, finished work of Christ. And during this time, he now begins the church period where Jesus has this great ministry where it says he, he always lives to give intercession for his people. So you got that. You and I got that going for us today. Jesus right now in heaven, in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of all the stuff that we are dealing with, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, conquering death is seated at the right hand of his father interceding on behalf of his people and then he's coming again and when he comes again it will not be like the first time where nobody really knew that he came except for a few when he comes back the whole world will know that king jesus has returned and he will place his feet literally on planet earth in his second coming and he will establish a kingdom where he will reign and he will rule and it will be another affirmation of the Father toward Jesus. Okay, that's a sermon in and of itself, but that's just the review. So let's look at the testimony of John the Baptist. And in case you're worried, I do have a timer. I know when I have to be done, okay? Keith, I know you're worried. It's 22 minutes and 30 seconds, all right? All right, look, look with me in 33 through 35 now. Let's just read that again, and let's talk about John's testimony. You sent to John, 533, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. I brought a chair up here. So here's what happens now in our text. John the Baptist is called to the witness stand to come and sit and to give his testimony in the courtroom in front of the religious leaders. What did John have to say testimony-wise about Jesus Christ? What did John do? So, so John, in Jesus' words, <clears throat> comes to the stand and he sits down. There had been no prophet in Israel for four hundred years no fresh alive ministry now god was still speaking through the old testament scriptures but there was no prophet for 400 years now all of a sudden there's this guy out there in the wilderness and he's crying out he has a voice and he is proclaiming that he's not the christ but the christ is coming and he's getting everything ready and so he's out there and it's been 400 years since anybody has been freshly speaking in a powerful way. And for a short amount of time, the religious leaders and the Jews loved John the Baptist. It was like, awesome. Man, God has not sent us a prophet in 400 years. Now all of a sudden, we've got a prophet. And he's out there speaking and everybody is going out to John the Baptist at, <clears throat> at the Jordan River. It's been a huge amount of time. Maybe they're thinking in their mind, there's an excitement that's there. 
the Messiah has come. Maybe John's the Messiah. Or maybe John's Elijah. He's this one. Maybe, maybe all of this is about to come to fruition. Rome is going to be overthrown because they had an idea of a political rescuer. Church, let's not get caught up in the failure of the Jews 2,000 years ago that we need some kind of political rescuer. We need a Savior who can fix us on the inside, whose name is King Jesus. And so maybe they are just longing for, thinking that the fulfillment of overthrowing Rome is going to happen. But you know what happened with John like it did with Jesus? After a little while, they're like, you're not what we wanted. Why? John's message was this, particularly to the religious leaders that Jesus is speaking to in John chapter 5. He was calling them a brood of vipers. That doesn't make friends. He called them whitewashed tombs. Dead on the inside, but looked pure on the outside. They used to, the Jews would paint the tombs white. Bleach them, make, make them look really great, but on the inside, what's there? Death. And so, so when Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs, that he said to the religious leaders, you're dead on the inside, but you look pure on the outside, but you're not. And so, so for a while, they were great about John. There was some excitement, but eventually they rejected the reality of John. But look what the text says. You sent to John. You went to John, and you listened to John. And this is what John did. You went out to him, and you enjoyed his, his light for a brief bit, But here's what you discovered about John. John was about the truth. John wasn't about making sure everybody just felt good about things. John wasn't about overthrowing Rome. John was calling you to repentance, that you needed to repent of your sin and come back to God. And so when you went out to John, you sent to him, this is what you learned about John, he bore witness to the truth. So two two brief things real quick. What was true about John? John was a fulfillment, his life was a fulfillment of the Word of God and the promises of God that one was going to come to get things ready for the coming of the Messiah. And then John would stand. This is what John would do. John, remember what I said earlier, what we exalt is where we're going to take our stand. John exalted the truth connected to the coming Messiah, and that's where he took his stand. And that's why he said over and over, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not the Messiah, he's coming. I can't carry his sandals. I can baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, so the uniqueness of John and his bearing testimony is that he was a fulfillment of the Word of God and the promises of God, and that he would bear witness to Jesus. This is what John chapter 1 says, verse 6 and through 8. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Notice that, that all might believe through him, through John. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. Now, by the way, as Jesus calls John to come up and take the witness stand, John was not Jesus' main key witness. Why? Because John was a man. Sometimes you can't rely on men's testimony why because men are selfish men see things differently men are easily deceived they think of themselves too much they're not always honest they have sometimes the wrong 
motives. And so Jesus' greatest testimony wasn't John the Baptist. His greatest testimony was what the Father had said. That was the great testimony. And then in a couple weeks when we get there, we will see this, this affirmation of the Scripture in regard to who Jesus is. And so, again, look at the text. Look at 33. So you sent to John. You went out to John, and, and he bore witness. This was his passion. His great passion was to bear witness to the truth. And then Jesus says in the first part of 34, not that the testimony I receive is from man. That's, that, that, that's not the selling point. John the Baptist is not the selling point. It's, it's a good point. Last prophet, what he has to say, really important. But Jesus just says this. I'm telling you about John because of this, because he came for this purpose, to give testimony that you would come to me for salvation. What was the role of John's purpose, his ministry? John 1, verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through John. So Jesus is telling the religious leaders right there in the temple, listen, you went out to John the Baptist for a while, you thought he was awesome, but he didn't come to bear witness about himself. He came to bear witness about me, and the purpose that I'm reminding you of now is that John came to bear witness about me, and John's message was this, is that life is found in me. And so Jesus says there in 34, Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things to you so that you may be saved. So Jesus was saying all of this to the religious leaders and everybody else who was listening. I'm telling you this so that you will believe John's testimony about me that he said I was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But... Did they listen to the Baptist? No. They didn't listen to the Baptist. Now let me make sure you and I are on the same page with Jesus in John chapter 5. For on that day in Jerusalem, listen, listen, listen. He was not attempting to win an argument. Far too often we Christians want to win arguments. What was he he doing in John chapter 5 that day? He was attempting to win souls. Now, sometimes we contend for the faith, and we have to deal with um, attacks upon our faith and the Scripture. But Jesus that day was not trying to win an argument. He was trying to win souls. He was pleading with the religious leaders. John, the prophets, the Father, my testimony, all give evidence, my works. We'll talk about those next week. My works give testimony that I am God. Nobody can do the things that I'm doing. And all the things that he does in, John, in John's gospel alone, works-wise and signs-wise, point to that reality. And if somebody doesn't know who Jesus is, and they stand under the condemnation. And so Jesus is wanting to win souls in the text and so look at 35 he says this about jesus says this about john he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light so they were willing to listen to john for a time as they got caught up in the excitement of the baptist ministry it had been 400 years since the prophet had been there but notice this john was a lamp he was not the light he was just a lamp shining and that lamp pointed to the light of the world who would come now let me just deal with this before we move on 
we got other boxes. Boxes are important. We've got to get to our boxes. And I want to just speak honestly as your pastor into your life. Do you notice what Jesus said there? You are willing to rejoice in the ministry of John the Baptist for a while. You know, one of the things that I think plagues us far too often is this phrase, for a while, marks our lives. Oh, I love Jesus for two months, and then I don't love Jesus for five months. I'm real faithful and active and passionate and reading and coming to church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then uh, it just wanes and it's gone. And I want to plead with everybody in the room this morning that our life and our passion and our love for the majesty and the glory of Christ that he's speaking of in John chapter 5 would not be marked by for a while phrase. For a while, I love Jesus But then for a while, I don't love Jesus. And I want to remind you and I, we are called to find life in Him. As a matter of fact, because the Father has life in Himself, and Jesus has life in Himself, guess who else has life in Himself? The Holy Spirit does. We are not going to find life out there in the world apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the Father, and apart from the Spirit. And so let's, let's live in such a way that our lives are not marked with this phrase describing us for a while we walked with Him. All right. Why was John the Baptist's testimony so important? I want to give you four brief things and then we're going to close with John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. Let me tell you why John's testimony, why Jesus brought him up to the stand to sit on the witness stand to give um, eyewitness testimony. Here's four or five, five things real quick. Why John the Baptist's testimony was important. The first one was this. His work was the fulfillment of prophecy. When God speaks, He always fulfills what He speaks. He always brings it So John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus is really significant because he is the fulfillment of prophecy. His life was, his ministry was, his testimony was. This was John's life was a closing of the old way, the Old Testament. John would die before the cross um, happened. And so, so John was an ending of sorts, but also an ushering in of the beauty of the church age because of the cross. Secondly, John the Baptist's testimony was important because he was recognized as a prophet. Many people then and, and now as well acknowledge that John was guided by the Holy Spirit as a prophet of God. This was true about the prophets. They were called by God specifically. They received direct revelation from God to speak, thirdly, the words of God. And this is what John did. God, the Father, told him, when it was time, and he went out to the wilderness, and he began to preach, and he began to proclaim, and he began to baptize people. Thirdly, about John, why his life was so significant, he was a just and holy man. He was a just. King Herod was no friend of John's. John was in prison by rebuking Herod's sins of stealing his brother's wife, um, his new wife, 
did not like what John was saying and had John eventually, um, through deception, beheaded and killed. Matthew 21, 32 says that Jesus said John came in the way of righteousness. Here's the fourth thing as to why the Baptist testimony is so important. Is John lived his life free from the desire for wealth, from self-exaltation, or personal power. You don't wear camel's clothes because you want to get on the cover of a magazine. You don't preach the things that John preached because... You're trying to gain favor and get a large crowd. He was clothed in camel's hair and a leather belt, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Locusts and wild honey, did you hear that? He was different. He was free from the desire of wealth and self-exaltation and personal power. And the last thing about why his testimony is so important is that John was a bold, outspoken opponent of sin and the hypocrisy that is connected with false religion. His primary message demanded that people repent of their sins, and so he boldly rebuked the powerful religious leaders, calling them a brood of vipers who needed they needed to repent, flee from wrath, and they needed to bring forth the fruit of righteousness that was connected with repentance. And if they didn't, John told the religious leaders that they themselves would be cut down as well and burned like a tree that did not bear good fruit. So, where are we? Well, here we are. Let me give you eight things. I think it's eight things. No, it's nine things. I don't know. We'll find out. It's eight or nine. Let me tell you what the... So what did John say? What did John say when he came up to the stand by his life and his ministry and he sat down? What did John begin to say about the majesty and the glory of Christ? And the first thing that he said was this. It was a consistent theme. is the coming Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. He's coming and he is mightier than a prophet. Church, hear this today. Jesus is not just a prophet. Was he prophetic and a prophet in a sense? Absolutely, he was. But he was way more than a prophet. He was God himself. This is what Jesus had been proclaiming. And over and over, John makes this claim. And he says this. This is Matthew 11. Second part of Matthew 3.11. He who is coming after me is mightier than I prophets spoke the word of God Jesus is the word of God so he's mightier than a prophet secondly he has more worth than a prophet now I I'm I'm fascinated always by John the Baptist I think he's such a unique man in in God's economy of things and John said this John the Baptist the closing prophet of the Old Testament, the forerunner, the one getting things ready for Jesus, said this, I, I'm not even worthy. You know what slaves did? You know what their role was when he came into a house? They would take the shoes that were yucky and they would carry them and they would clean them. And John says this, I'm not even worthy to carry the sandals of the one who's coming. 
And so John's testimony was, not only was Jesus going to be mightier than a prophet, but he would have more worth than a prophet had. And then John said this. He said, listen, I can get you wet. And I can baptize you to a place of calling you to repentance. But there's one who is coming who's going to baptize you with the the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And it will change you from your old life to your new life. This is John. This is Matthew 3.11. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then in Matthew 3.12, John says this. He's going to come. And when he comes, he's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Now, a few years ago, up in the foothills of the Himalayas when we were there, uh, Mark and I and, and um, were walking with uh, one of our ministry partners there, and we came upon a village there where they were, or a house, where they were separating the wheat from the chaff. Now, back in the day, they would take something like this, and they would, they would, um, uh, they would first take an oxen or a donkey, and they would have a board, and they would, in a circle... They would lay the board down on the ground and the donkey or the oxen would walk around in the circle and it would begin to crush the wheat stalks and separate things. And then they would take this and they would take it and they would throw it up in the air and you can see it. The chaff, which is not the real wheat, blows away in the wind and that which is real and and substantive, the wheat, directly falls to the ground. That was interesting in the foothills of the Himalayas. They're using a fan, an oscillating fan. And they've got this big fan there, and they take this and they throw it up, and it hits the fan, and the chaff blows away, and the heavy wheat just falls to the ground. And John the Baptist's testimony is, the Son of God, when He comes, why? Why does He have this role? Because He has been given the authority to judge. And so he's going to, with all of mankind, he's going to lift them up. He's going to throw them up. And he will know exactly what's real and what's not authentic because what's not real will blow away and what is real will remain and it will fall to the ground. And so John gives this testimony affirming, watch this, word, third W, Scripture interprets Scripture. John the Baptist affirms that Jesus has been given the authority to judge And the other one is down here. The Father has given Jesus this role as the judge. So Jesus has this role to separate the wheat from the chaff. And then John the Baptist says this about Jesus. Is that he came to prepare the pathway for the Messiah. Now through John's ministry you could come to know Christ. But but to prepare the pathway for the one who's greater. So John's testimony is that I'm getting things ready for the one who is greater. And so, so that was John's role. Then John said this, that, that all he did was he preached about the one who was to come. He didn't preach about himself. He didn't make a big deal about the clothing that he wore. But his ministry was grounded in Christ-centered preaching. This is John 1, 7 through 8. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And so John's role was Christ-centered preaching. He just talked about Jesus consistently. And then one day, John has got, he's got 
thousands of people that have come to be a part of his ministry. And he's at a place one day and Jesus walks by and he's got all his, he's got all his guys with him. And when Jesus walks by, John just says that, look right there, look, 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 look. Behold the Lamb of God right there walking. There he is, there he is, the one we've been walk, waiting for. There he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John speaks about the eternal nature of Jesus. Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. John the Baptist was born first. And in the scriptures, John said this, that he was before me. Well, how can he be before me if John the Baptist was born before Jesus? The reason Jesus is before John the Baptist is that Jesus already existed. So John affirms the eternal nature of Jesus. Last one. Is that John affirms that Jesus is the Son of God. This was his testimony. That Jesus is the Son of God. This is John 134, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And I want to close our time before we sing with a reminder of something. And I want you to look at those. We got more to come. This is the affirmation to the glory of Christ. Jesus affirming who he is, the Father's affirmation, now John the Baptist's affirmation. Church, this is the gospel. Church, this is the gospel. This is is the gospel message. Jesus is the centerpiece person of the entire world. Now, I want to bring some practical application as we finish things up this morning. Our world has been turned upside down, and in some ways, understandably so, in regard to issues of race in our country um, that have gone on for a long time. But I, I want to make sure that you and I understand this, that race is not the gospel. So we're not going to, as a church here, make social causes trump this. I said this last week, this fixes the social causes. Social causes don't add to this, this fixes the social causes. And so we've got to be careful that we only exalt Jesus. Did Jesus care about this issue? Yeah, He did. Read John chapter 4, where the Son of God, who was born a Jew, went into Samaria and loved half-breed people according to the Jewish perspective. Jesus valued. His last words were what? Go into the nations, to all races, ethnicities, colors of skin, whatever, and do what? Proclaim this. 
Don't make man the center of things. Make this the center of things because this fixes all of those things. And so Acts 1, going to Samaria, they are told in Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. But I want to finish. So that's one application. We cannot allow social causes, the poor, race things, um, government, election year. We cannot allow that to become the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. These are the tenets of the gospel. But I want David and I were texting yesterday. And I want to ask you a question, and it is a trick question. It's telling you up front. What's the opposite of love? You don't need to say it out loud. Probably immediately came into your mind hate, right? Probably the opposite of love is hate. I want to put forth in the room this morning the possibility that the opposite of love is not hate, but the opposite of love is fear. And could it be that the reason our world is responding the way that it is and all the different things that are out there from issues of race to COVID-19, mask, not mask, government overreach, not government overreach, whatever the issue may be. Could the issue be that do we see hatred? Yeah, we do. But could the thing be behind that, not hatred, but fear? And let me give you a biblical thought. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have both now eaten the fruit Genesis 3.8 says, God comes walking in the cool of the garden. And what do Adam and Eve do immediately? They hide. What is that principle? Is that hatred? Are they hating God in that moment? And I would put forth, I don't think they're hating God. I think something has happened. They don't know what to do. And they're afraid. And so they go and they hide. And so here they are hiding in the garden And God comes, and if you're wondering, like I am, why there is so much anger and hate in the world, it's definitely because there's not enough love, and it's definitely because there's hatred toward God. But I just wonder if much of what we're seeing is because we have made fear much bigger in light of the gospel. And we can't allow this. Here's the deal. Because this is true, it should eradicate this. And if you are fearful, because this is true, this was nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago and the Son of God bore this problem that is present in the world right now. And so fear, because that's true, should be seen as small Because this is true. And I will not allow social causes to dominate this church. Well, I shouldn't say. I I will try not to. But I know that we as elders know this. We know this to be true. And we're going to fight for our church not to get sidetracked. On issues that are, by the way, are important are important all of those things are important but they pale in comparison to that and this
Let's pray.